Eagles Entertainment. During this time, as folks are choosing to stay at home, NovaCare Rehabilitation is offering tele-rehab right from the comfort of your home. For more information, go to NovaCare.com. NovaCare, the power of physical therapy. A lot of times you can hit the quarterback all game without getting a sack and cause interceptions. The big number is that Houston has already had two turnovers and Philadelphia has zero points to show for it. That is that is a key stat in Jeffries. And that's a nice open field tackle by Wes Hopkins at the 50. It's hit by Allen and can't make the catch, and Haywood wants to know where the flag is. Oh, it's so There's close. no question that the focus of this offense is on my position. In order for this offense to play well, I have to play well. Jeff Eagles takes the low snap. The rush was on, but he gets it away. They Houston to kick on fourth and two. Montgomery to punt it. It ends with Houston on top. Oilers on top. Another look. It doesn't get any closer than this. We're back. It's the final episode of season one in our limited series, Return Game, House of Pain Game, presented by NovaCare Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Rob Ellis. The Philadelphia Eagles are in Houston, Texas, playing the Oilers. We wrapped our last episode heading into halftime of this Monday night football game. The Birds had set the tone with a brutally physical defense and almost completely contained Love You Blue run-and-shoot offense. Anyone who expected a knockdown drag-out affair had not been disappointed. The Oilers had eked out a field goal at the end of the half. The Eagles still hadn't scored. As the halftime whistle blew and players from both sides left the field, the scoreboard read 3-0. Second half kickoff into the arms of Heath Sherman. There's a flag. There's a fumble. Nobody had held that offense to three points in a half, probably in a successive two years. So we knew we had them where we wanted them. Um, It was just a matter of us trying to figure out, okay, can the offense, you know, generate any points? Can we create turnovers and put them on the plus side of the field so they don't have to sustain a bunch of first downs to get there? Or can we turn the ball over on the defensive side, you know, and score? We realized that it was truly going to turn into a game of field position because our offense just couldn't sustain enough first downs to move the ball systematically down the field. Um, and score. But there was never any consternation, never any doubt as to whether we were going to win this game. Going into the third quarter, Seth Joyner was feeling confident. Sure, he was still fighting that fever and dehydration that had plagued him all weekend, but somehow he was able to push through those symptoms and deliver a high caliber performance that to this day, people are still talking about. And he was just getting started. My mindset was, listen, I knew what the guys around me were going to do because we were prepared. And as a defensive unit, we were on a string, if you will. I just didn't know how I was going to react. I didn't know what I was going to be able to accomplish, what I was going to be able to add to the mix. And not that it was a concern, because I kind of felt like after the first two series, all of a sudden I knew as a defensive unit that we were in the zone. Now it was just a matter of not screwing it up. You know, don't overthink it. Don't try to over-anticipate plays. Just let the game come to you. Achieving this level of zen during a big game doesn't happen very often. Not only was I operating in in the zone, but as a defensive unit, we were in the zone. There's been probably five or six times, you know, in my career that I can say I, looking back now, I can know that I was in the zone. 
And the one thing that was always prevalent is the fact that you had good preparation during the week. So by the time you get to the game, the head's in the barn. You're not worried about, you're not thinking about anything. You're not sitting in your locker going over your game plan. You've already done all the work. When you hit the field, all of a sudden, everything is just on natural. And when it's on natural like that, you're not thinking about, you know, technical stuff and fundamental stuff. And all you're doing is reacting to what you see. And it's almost, it's eerie because almost every move that you make, every step that you make, every decision that you make in the moment is the right decision. Have you ever wondered about locker room life? Like what happens when a team leaves the field at halftime? It's a bit of a mystery. You have the Hollywood version, sweaty players, big-eyed, looking to their coach for the magic words that carry them to victory. Being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. It's not about winning. It's about you and your relationship to yourself and your family and your friends. Not so fast, says Bruce Matthews. I sit with my boys all the time, and when a sports movie comes on, and like we watched uh, Friday Night Lights this weekend, and dude's making these speeches, you know, like these life lesson type stuff, and you're like, shut up and tell me how to block this guy. He's been killing me. I don't want to hear about... You're going to remember this for the rest of your life. Especially in the Astrodome. Even getting to the motivational speech, if you were expecting one, was not easy. Halftime is kind of overrated. You have 12 minutes, right? And back in the day, you had to walk out of the tunnel, around about an eighth of the dome, walk upstairs, maybe use the restroom if you needed to, go see the trainer, get some equipment checked on, and then maybe get a minute and a half of instruction. And it's, there isn't like, there's this huge rewriting of the script or anything. And to be perfectly honest, because I know the nature of what I would have been feeling was, yeah, it sucks, we're only up three nothing. Especially with the way their offense was struggling. And I go, hey, we're going to come out. We're going to get a score. It's going to be 10 nothing, maybe 17 nothing. Then we'll find a way to get it done the rest of the game. So that was my mindset. It was like, yeah, this Eagles defense is everything we thought they were and more. And uh, no surprises. Matthews was getting exactly what he expected from the gangrene defense. And his teammates were probably feeling the same about the Eagles offense. This game, much like the 1991 season, was about to take an unexpected twist that would impact that memorable night in the Dome. Well, I could be premature, of course, but in McMahon's case, with that damaged elbow to begin with, anything could be serious. Oh, I think he might have dislocated a finger, and they're just trying to pop oh, it back in. They're testing his strength. They're that wanting is. to see how hard he can squeeze his hand. There wasn't one big hit. Right now, the most important elbow in Philadelphia. That knocked him out though I know he'd been hit all first half and a little bit there in the, um, in the second half. McMahon came off, and Jeff Kemp in at quarterback for Philadelphia. They were rushing really heavy and hard, sometimes with extra uh, defenders, some dogs, some blitzes, and it was making our offense really hard to execute. We weren't able to throw the ball down the field a whole lot. 
Randall Cunningham's backup, Jim McMahon, had been playing through injury all season. But on December 2nd, early in the third quarter, he hyperextended his elbow. When you go shopping for a quarterback midway through the season, your options are pretty limited. But if you're going to bring a quarterback in off the street at midseason, the one thing he's got to be is smart. He's got to be a guy that's smart enough to pick up your offense and be able to execute it. Even if he can't chuck at 80 yards, he just has to be able to understand the formations, make the play calls, and make the throws that are there to be made. And Jeff Kemp could do that. He was a smart kid. He'd gone to Dartmouth. He had played in a lot of different systems. And actually, it was really an inspired choice on the part of, uh, of the Eagles management to go out and look at the quarterbacks that were available and say, you know what? There are no Hall of Famers sitting out there, but I think our best option is Jeff Kemp. And he came in, and for that night, I mean, he, he got this team moving. The defense simply buckled their chin straps of their Kelly Green helmets and kept the pressure on the other QB, Warren Moon, and his surrounding cast of Oilers offense. You can't worry about who's a quarterback and what he might do and can he score. We just kept doing what we were doing. We weren't worried about it. I don't think, you know, we knew that Jim was out and we were a little apprehensive about it. But I think that just poured gas on our fire because we knew we had to be even that much more because we didn't have him in the game anymore. We had to be that much more dominant. By the third quarter, the Oilers were used to McMahon, but now he was sidelined. Ted Pardee remembers his dad's team needed to rethink their strategy because Jeff Kemp was a different kind of QB. Defensively, they were concerned. When you have a quarterback change from from someone like Jim McMahon, who was a solid all-around quarterback, he was not going to scramble around and do anything with his legs to threaten a defense. Jeff Kemp, on the other hand... He also brings a running dimension to the game. He is a good scrambler out of the pocket. What that does to a defense like the Houston Oilers, and the Houston Oilers, they prided themselves on blitzing and mixing up the defense to uh, defensive combinations to to try to disguise what they were doing and confuse the offense. When you have a quarterback that scrambles like Kemp, that changes things because you can't just do your wholesale blitzes where you bring six or you bring seven and you play pure man uh, on the backside. Midway through the third quarter, the Eagles tied the score with a field goal from Roger Ruzik. 23-yard field goal for Ruzik. Seagulls to hold. And that ties it. After the Oilers lost the lead, they found themselves in a place they hadn't been often that season. Tied at three, with a series of fumbles weighing on them. Frustration started to creep in. Sometimes you start going, man, we need to take advantage of our opportunities because... Although the Eagles' offense had struggled, they're still professionals, and they can still make plays. And I think when we didn't put any distance between us and the Eagles, you know, that thought kind of starts creeping into the back of your mind. It's like, gosh, eventually they're going to make a play. In one regard, we weren't expecting a track meet but on the other hand, we were used to playing those grind out games where it came down to the final possession and we had to make find a way to make a play. And this was just another in that list of tough physical games against a very, very good defense. Coach Gilbride had been the man tasked with developing a strategy to stop or at least slow the Eagles' defense down. By the second half... That plan was not going as expected. 
Bob Young there on the left, Jack Pardee on the right, and I'm sure Jack is saying, Bob, explain this to me, how your offensive lineman, Bruce Matthews, and my quarterback, Warren Moon, can't execute the simplest of center quarterback exchanges. We had a couple of uh, mishandled center quarterback exchanges, and of course, Bruce Matthews, we had switched him over to center uh, because of some injuries we had had. And, you know, you have a guy who's a first-round Hall of Fame player, and to have him and Warren Moon, who's in the Hall of Fame, two Hall of Famers, having a couple of mishandled center quarterback exchanges was highly, highly, highly unusual. Both teams knew flawless execution was critical. Giving the opponent an edge would likely be the razor-thin difference between winning and losing. As the game headed deeper into the second half, it was becoming apparent that the Oilers were struggling. It was a tough game. I think that uh, it was one of those situations where the Oilers would have some success and then they would shoot themselves in the foot. Unfortunately, Warren Moon fumbled two snaps, and over a two-week period, he fumbled four snaps. But not just the fumbled snaps. There was uh, you know, interceptions and other mistakes that were made that just uh, seemed to shoot that team in the foot. Yeah, but so far, it's been a touchdown filibuster by both defenses out here tonight. Hmm. A 3-3 ball game. Warren Moon was a future Hall of Famer. Before joining the Oilers, Moon played five seasons for the Canadian Football League. His stellar performance up north caught the eye of the NFL, and after a bidding war, the Oilers signed Moon. His spiral was a sight to see. Some say it was the prettiest throw in the NFL. And when you're playing on the opposing team, it's a special kind of challenge to contain a player of that caliber. Moon was sacked four times during this Monday night football game. Seth Joyner had two of those depending on who the quarterback is, too, from a personal standpoint, you take personal joy. Like, I love to sack Phil Sims because he was always so angry that I sacked him. You just have those guys. I always loved sacking Troy Aikman just because he was a damn Dallas Cowboy. Warren Moon, he was kind of one of those guys in the hierarchy of quarterbacks at that time. So it was kind of a badge of honor to be able to, you know, sack guys like him and Elway. Montana, Marino. It's just all depend. I mean, when you're you sack a rookie, you're happy you got the sack, but it doesn't carry the kind of cachet when you sack one of those guys. When your stadium has the nickname the House of Pain, there are high expectations on the home team to put on a performance that lives up to that mystique on a Monday night football game. In the second half, Oilers fans were not happy with what they were seeing. It was a little crazy. I mean, you know, Houston fans are, are not forgiving when you're making mistakes. And so there were definitely some boos from time to time that would happen in the stadium. And Warren Moon is being booed lustily by the crowd here at the Astrodome. It was a fan base that was ready to see a great team play well. And when when a great team doesn't play up to their capabilities, you're, you're definitely going to hear it from the fans. And, and so there was there was a bit of that. And it, it gets pretty rowdy. It used to get really rowdy in the Astrodome. Uh, not, not a great place you want to hear a bunch of boos coming. With around seven minutes remaining in the third quarter, the Eagles were able to get something going, finally. I had two cause fumbles, but one of them was a fumble on the running back that put the offense in positive position in order to allow us to score points. Now it's White and Moon fumbles and is picked up by Seth Joyner. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unreal. Unreal is right. I think that being called upon to blitz as a linebacker, the defense coordinator is adding you into the mix 
with confidence that you will get there. He knows what the other four guys up front are going to do. And that's the one, one of the things that I loved about Bud Carson is that he had great trust in me that when he called a blitz that I was going to get there or I was going to take two blockers so that someone else could get there. Now might be a good time to bring in Fran Duffy, host of Eagle Eye in the Sky, to explain the nuances of blitzing and why it can be high risk, high reward. All right, so let's quickly just define the word blitz. Really, if you, on any given play, the defense has the ability to send up to four players along the defensive front. On the offensive line, they're always trying to figure out who are the four most likely rushers, and they're going to try and account for them in a lot of different ways. Anytime the defense sends somebody other than those typical four defenders, so we'll say a linebacker or a cornerback or a safety, that's when it is defined as a blitz. And now every team kind of tweaks what they'll say is the definition, but really, nuts and bolts of it, if you send a linebacker, a corner, or a safety, that is a blitz. And obviously, there's a little bit of risk-reward to that, right? If you're going to send some players from the second and third level, you are removing a player from coverage to try and attack the quarterback. And so uh, there's a little bit of risk-reward there, and teams have to be aware of how to play coverage on the back end. You might play man-to-man, you might play zone. Every team, every coach is going to go about that a little bit differently. I will say with Buddy Ryan, and this goes back, this is one of his best sayings, and really one of my favorite sayings in all of football, no quarterback has completed a pass while lying flat on his back. So when you have a coach that that's his core philosophy, that they're going to get after the quarterback, you can bet that they're going to blitz an awful lot. Seth Joyner had recovered that fumble. This possession could be the opportunity for the Eagles offense to show the Eagles defense, hey, we're a part of this team too, and help a defense that had been carrying them all evening. We didn't get really close to the end zone until late in the third quarter, mid-third third quarter, when we got to the ball to the 20-yard line. And I remember getting the play call because most of our play calls had been designed to handle their pass rush, which meant shorter drop back, quicker release, receivers that are open pretty quickly, shorter routes. And this one was not that. This was one of the slowest developing deep passes we had a seven-step drop that's nine yards deep. Keith Jackson on the left side was going to run a, a corner out, which first he goes to the post, fakes like he's running a post, then he cuts to the corner, and that takes extra time. And you're supposed to stand back there and let the play develop. And I'm thinking at the line of scrimmage, literally, while I'm calling signals, hey, there's no way this play is going to work. <laughs> I don't have time for a three-step drop back, much less a seven-step drop. They're going to get in here too soon. But things changed quickly at the line of scrimmage, and I noticed that uh, the linebackers were creeping up. And the most obvious thing is the free safety, who usually would be 15 yards deep on the five-yard line. He was walking and then kind of speed walking and eventually jogging and finally sprinting straight for me. And he was trying to time it so he could you know, be coming to the line of scrimmage right when the snap came. And so all those signals you know, told me uh, this is a blitz. It's a free safety blitz. The linebackers are coming as well. It's an all-out blitz. They have more people coming than we have to protect. But this is the essence of football. It's a dangerous sport. Blitzes happen. But you also know that in the dangerous blitzes is an opportunity because the defense is vulnerable. They don't have a free safety in the middle anymore. No one to cover the, the middle of the field. And they're playing man-to-man, which is the coverage you want. The trick is you're not going to have any time to throw and you need to make all these decisions really quickly. I can't say that 
everything slowed down and I had this perfect imagination of how it would all work out because my coaches had taught it to me on the whiteboard and I practiced it on the practice field. I didn't practice on, on the practice field. McMahon did. But we were trained that the tight end would change his route from a corner to a quick post and the quarterback would change his drop from a seven to a five step. I planted my fifth step and threw the ball pretty much immediately to the spot that I imagined Keith going because I had a vision of him at first, but at the last second, that free safety is right in my face. And I'm throwing the ball kind of by this guy's helmet. And then he hits me and uh, I fall down and roll him off of me and we're both gonna sit and wait. Is it gonna be really noisy, good for Houston? Or real quiet, which is good for the Eagles. That's Williams in motion on second and seven from the 22 yard line. Hit as he throws, and the pass is caught by Jackson. Touchdown. Of course, in this game, it was really quiet because uh, this play turned into a perfect adjustment of the blitz. Keith ran to the post, caught the pass one half yard, passed the strong safety covering him, fell into the end zone, and it was nice and quiet, and our guys were happy, and I was happy, and Keith was happy, our sideline was happy. It was just cool that the game turned around so quickly. That memory's indelibly etched in my memory. Never did a lead ever look safer than it did that night, which was is an amazing thing to say when you're talking about the offense they were playing against. But Bud Carson had come up with a, a really good plan for how to attack these guys. I mean, he had his cornerbacks pressing on the outside. He had Wes Hopkins and Andre Waters, the two safeties, basically punishing anybody that came across the middle. They were able to cover the Oiler receivers, in a way the Oiler receivers had not been covered all year. But Carson's really done a wonderful job with this Eagle defense. They were number one against the pass, number one in total defense. Bud Carson's nickel defense was having the desired impact. What Bud Carson did was, I'm going to press on the outside. I'm going to be right up in the receivers' faces. They're not going to get those easy, quick throws. I'm going to make Moon hold the ball. I'm going to make these guys fight to get open and earn what they get. And it totally changed the whole tempo of the game, and it totally took this Oiler offense, which had been in sync all year, and and really, really put them back on their heels. As the third quarter wound down, the Oilers connected on a field goal to cut the Eagles' lead to 10-6. to six. The top week after week. Del Greco from 47. He made a 42-yarder earlier, and this one is good. Played the hook, didn't he? Yeah. Then the fourth quarter got underway. The Eagles maintained their lead and contained the Oilers' less-than-effective offense. Punts were traded. With three minutes and 52 seconds remaining, the Eagles added three more points to their total to give them a touchdown lead. 29-yard field goal attempt for Ruzek to try to put the Eagles up by seven. Eagles holds. And that makes it 13 to 6. A heavy tariff has been exacted by the Eagles secondary on anybody who ventures across the middle. Seth Joyner turning in one of the best defensive games anybody's ever played on Monday Night Football. Third down from the 24-yard line. And Moon spins away. This is it. We're out of time. Moon throws and it is down at the goal line and the Eagles have won it. Then it was over. On December 2nd, 1991, in front of 62,141 fans in the Astrodome, not to mention the television audience, the Philadelphia Eagles bested the Houston Oilers. 
The final score was 13-6. It was the first time in 33 games, dating all the way back to the 1989 season, the Oilers did not score a touchdown. As for the Eagles' defense, they forced five fumbles, recorded four sacks, and held Houston to 247 total yards. They had averaged 392. The House of Pain game was truly a remarkable and gutsy effort in front of a national audience. The Eagles, despite all kinds of chaos surrounding them all season, came to Houston and delivered a performance that still fascinates and captivates fans today. And this enthusiasm has endured for 29 years. That is one heck of a feat. The over-under on that game was 42, and everybody took the under, made a lot of money. And I'm guessing a lot of people took the under because they knew that the run and shoot might struggle against the Eagles' great defense. So the second half, they came out. Philadelphia was able to score a touchdown. And and the fact that the Oilers did not score a touchdown was just stunning to so many people. But, hey, the Eagles won that the whole fashioned way with physical hard-nosed nasty defense they played smart and they played great it started up front but the secondary was really good too led by the hard hitting of Wes Hopkins and Andre Waters when it comes to playing those that can't might outnumber those that can't there are multiple injuries on both sides and it is indicative of the type of game it has been physically this has been one of the hardest hitting ball games I've been around in a long time. When you talk about a ferocious defense, you're talking not about a just an effective defense or a fundamentally sound defense, but a defense that was both hard-hitting to the degree where they were intimidating, where you could hear the thuds coming off the... You could hear the collision of the plastic and the leather and everything else. You could just hear it at the top row of the stadium. It was every bit, in, in every way, ferocious. Uh, that game would never have stood today. We celebrated. I mean, even on the plane, flying back, you know, we knew that we had accomplished something really special playing against an offense of that caliber and what they were able to do and how they were giving the rest of the NFL fits. And we basically came into their house and dominated them. You know, we basically went in there and kicked their ass. You have been listening to Return Game, House of Pain Game, presented by NovaCare Rehabilitation. I'm Rob Ellis. Thanks for joining us this season. This podcast is a production of Eagles Entertainment and is produced and edited by Buffy Gorilla with sound design and mixing from Peter Kelly. And Eagles, thank you to all of our guests for sharing their stories. Our plan is to release a bonus episode of Return Game, House of Pain Game, and we would love to hear from you, our fans. What questions do you have about the game? Where did you watch the game? What were your reactions? And 29 years later, what still lingers in your memories? We would like to weave your thoughts and feelings along with some of our audio into the next episode. You can send us an email or record a short voice memo. Send it to podcasts at philadelphiaeagles.com for an opportunity to be a part of the next episode. If you enjoyed this show, please give us a five-star rating. It will help other people discover this podcast. If you have ideas for topics we should explore in future seasons of Return Game, please leave us a comment. Eagles Entertainment produces several other great podcasts that you may enjoy. We'd love if you check us out at philadelphiaeagles.com 
slash podcasts. If you cannot get enough of the House of Pain game, head over to Philadelphia Eagles' YouTube channel where you can relive some of the sacks, fumbles, and recoveries from this game and others. During this time, as folks are choosing to stay home, NovaCare Rehabilitation is offering tele-rehab right from the comfort of your home. For more information, go to NovaCare.com. NovaCare, the power of physical therapy.